Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. A young boy sits on the stoop of his apartment, nestled among the drugstores, bookie joints, and bakeries that lined 187th Street in New York City. 1961, in the Belmont neighborhood of the Bronx, nine-year-old Kaljuro watched as a couple of men began fighting over a parking spot in front of him. The altercation escalated as one of the men pulled out a baseball bat, attacking the other. In defense, he pulled out a gun. And all of a sudden, Calgero watched the man fall to the street in a pool of his own blood. Standing just five feet away, Calgero made eye contact with the Italian boss responsible for the murder. You may recognize this story as the opening scene from a Bronx tale. But for Chaz Palmenteri, he lived this very moment, and it changed the course of his life. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. Chaz Palminteri is known for writing and starring in the legendary A Bronx Tale, and for his additional iconic roles in films like Bullets Over Broadway and The Usual Suspects. But Chaz credits his Hollywood success to his parents' influence and his life growing up. Raised by a working family in the Bronx, Chaz was forced to develop street smarts at a young age after witnessing a murder from a neighborhood mobster. As shocking as the shooting was, it opened up the doors to the cool and flashy world of the mafia. As tempting as the idea to adopt that lifestyle was to so many around him, Chaz opted for an honest life, pursuing his passions instead. Today, he joins me for a conversation about his life, his work, and the romanticization of the mob in media today. Chaz Palminteri. A man who needs no introduction, but I'm so grateful and honored that you are here with me in studio today. It's great. Thank so that, you. Of course. It's my pleasure. Really, it's my honor. Um, you and I were just talking about the concept of showing up right. and being there physically. And that's something that you and I have talked about actually before. And right. being raised under the, the notion of Presenze Leone, that, that the physical is lion. How has that impacted your professional story and your meteoric star rise right. um, and the story of how you got here today. Well, I always say, you know, you have to show up. Nobody knocks on your door and, try, and says, hey, can I give you an opportunity? The more times you're in people's faces, the more times you have more opportunities. You know, I read a book about, I was, uh, Emily, about, I think I mentioned it to you when we had dinner with everyone the last time. And the number one thing to making it is adaptability how you adapt and pivot in certain situations. Emotional intelligence is much more important than IQ. There are many geniuses that just don't show up and they're not, they're not good at what they do. And the people who are, could adapt 
and a pretty good, emo, uh, intelligent, and emotionally intelligent, they get much farther ahead in life. But showing up is very, very important. You have an incredible story about the origins of a Bronx tale yeah. and about how that became, you know, you, you maintained the fact that it <clears throat> was all yours. You never let that go. No. And a lot of it has to do with you showing up rightly so for yourself yeah. and never letting talent go to waste. Can you yeah. share that whole yeah, story Yeah, sure. With us? Well, well, basically what happened was I was, uh, I went out, I was a theater actor, obviously, in New York. I studied at the Actors Studio and... I worked with Lee Strasberg, but then as I reacted, does they go out to L.A.? I went out to L.A. and bam, I got on Hill Street Blues, Dallas, Matlock, Peter Gunn, and I started doing, I was like, wow, I was really hitting it. But then you get cold times where you're not, whatever happens, happens. And I ran out of money, so I had to get a job as a doorman because I used to box in New York and work the door. So I got a job in, uh, at this very swanky Beverly Hills Club, and then one night, while I was there, this guy comes over to me, and he was really rude to me. And he said the words, do you know who I am? And you never say that to a doorman. Don't you know who I am? And when you say that, that means you're not getting in. <laughs> and I said, yes, I know who you are. You're not getting in. Well, <laughs> that man happened to be Swifty Lazar. Now, Swifty Lazar, and you're too young, but, no, but Swifty Lazar was the biggest agent in the world at the time, in the world. And I just told him that he couldn't get into his own party. It was his party, and he was late. That's why he was rude to me. And so he said, you'll be fired in 15 minutes. So just like he said, 15 <laughs> minutes later, the boss called me in and said, Chaz, I love you. You're a great guy, but I got to fire you because he has too many parties here. I'm sorry. And I said, nah, that's all right. So I got back into my 1972 Honda. This is 35 years ago with a big dent. And um, I went back to my uh, apartment in North Hollywood a little dumpy apartment, but I was okay. I was still happy, and I said, well, what am I going to do? Should I go back to New York? And then I saw the thing on my refrigerator. The saddest thing in life is wasted talent. Mm -hmm. My father's card, and I said, well, if they won't give me a great part, I'll write one myself. And I got five tabs of yellow paper, legal yellow paper at, at the drugstore, and I said, what should I write about? And I remember the killing that I saw when I was nine years old. That came into my head. That had always been in my head. So I started writing about it. I performed it for my theater workshop, the five minutes. They loved it. I said, wow, okay, this is really good. And each week I would write a little more and perform it on Monday nights, write a little more, take out two minutes out of the 10 minutes I wrote. So after about almost a year, I had this tight show and I wanted to play all the parts. I wanted to clap my hand like it was a film cut. I wanted to do a movie on stage. And people thought I was crazy. But I did it. I borrowed the money to produce it from my friend. I produced it myself. And it wasn't much. He lent me like $40,000. I put it up in a little theater. And Emily, explosion. It was the biggest, hottest property since Stallone. It always happened twice, Rocky and me. So everybody wanted, every movie star wanted to play Sonny, every big writer wanted to write the story, every director wanted to direct it, every studio wanted it, and, but the problem was they didn't want me. They wanted to put a, a star in the role. They said, look, you know, kid, we, we think you're a great actor, but uh, nobody knows you. We can't make a big movie with you starring in it. And you can't write the screenplay, we want a, like a real screenplay writer. And I said, here's the deal, I play Sonny and I write the screenplay. 
And they said, well, then forget the 250. <clears throat> and that was it. So people thought I was crazy because I had no money in the bank. I had $200 left in the bank. Mm. Month later, or th weeks later, I got offered 500000 Another studio calls. Again, I say, I play Sunny, I read the screenplay. No. I said, okay. I said, well, I'm not doing it. So then I finally signed with William Morris. And William Morris said, look, we got a deal. I want you to come and look at these people. I said, very serious people, very famous director. I met with him. And they put a piece of paper on the table. They said, sign that paper. They pushed it to me and said, you'll have a check tomorrow for $1 million. And I said, uh, and I said, is there a bathroom around here? And they said, yeah, right over there. I said, I, I see, I'll be right back. So I walked into the bathroom and I looked in the mirror and I put my hand in my pocket. And for some reason, I brought my father's card with me. And I looked at the card. The saddest thing in life is wasted talent. So I just said, you know, screw it. But I said something else. But I said, okay. And that's what I walked out. And I said, look, I'll sign that paper. And I could see their faces lighten up. I said, but I play Sonny and I write the screenplay. And they, he just put his head down and said, Chaz, we can't do it. We can't do it with you. It's, you're an unknown. We can't do that. And I said, well, then it's over. And I stood up and he said, you're, you're turning this million dollars down? I said, yes. I said, I write the screenplay, I play Sonny. And he goes, you know, this movie won't get made. And I said, you're right, with you, but it'll get made because it's too good. And I walked out. And two weeks later, I did the show, standing ovation as always, and the stage manager runs over to me and says, hey, you better get down to your dressing room. Robert De Niro is waiting for you. And I said, Robert De Niro? And he said, yeah. I walk into the dressing room, and there was Bob De Niro. He said, look, I just saw the show. It's... It's unbelievable. He said, he said, you did a movie on stage. I said, yeah. He goes, and he said, look, I know you, you're not going to sell it, but if you do sell it, they're going to come to me anyway. And I said, I know, but Bob, I'm not selling it. I said, I want to play Sonny, and I want to write the screenplay. He said, all right, here's what I want to do. He said, you should play Sonny. You'll be great. You should write the screenplay because it'll be honest and real. It's your life. I'll play your father, and I'll direct it, and I'll make it right. And that was it. He shook my hand and we made the movie. And the rest, as they say. And the rest is history. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You count among yeah. your close friends to this day, of course, Bob De Niro. Yeah. Also, Michael Francis. Yes, very. Also, of course, childhood friends that you grew up with in that environment. And my question is, how is real life different than how it's portrayed in Hollywood in terms of the mob then and now? How has that evolved? You know, you you wrote this the play that right. became a film um, on based on real life that yes. you were observing. And the mob, there's a there's such a fascination with it, such an obsession with yes. it, especially here in this country. So describe for us, you know, your, Michael Francis, he was a mobster himself. Oh, he was legitimate. Bob De Niro, actor, playing yes. such. Yourself, Chaz Palminteri, playing it. So tell us about the difference well, between the, yeah. Hollywood and the reality. It's of, very hard to get 
a real to really portray the mob really accurate. You really you have to have a really good script. You know, in other words, a lot of people play the mob as dumb govones idiots. The thing that's different, Emily, is that mob guys, a lot of them were nice guys. I know that sounds crazy. It's a paradox. I know it is. Sonny was a great guy, funny, friendly. Would, would he kill you? Yes. Yes. If you crossed him, absolutely. Do I condone what he did? No. But he was very funny and very educated, self-read. He's the one who told me to read Machiavelli. He's the one who said, all wise guys read Machiavelli. He goes, read it, kid. I was very young, and I didn't really, I couldn't read it when I was very young. But when I was 17, 18, I started reading it. And then I became actually a student of Machiavelli because I, I just obsessed myself with Machiavelli, you know. But the difference is Bronx Tale, Goodfellows, mm -hmm. Donnie Brasco, The Godfather, they really touch on it very accurately, very accurately. And they show the mob people three-dimensional. A family man, The Sopranos, a wonderful script. He was a family man. He loved, he loved his family. But was he a killer? Was he a tough guy? Yeah, absolutely. So that's why people are fascinated with these guys, with these people. They're so different than normal people. <laughs> you know, how could you go to church on Sunday with your family and then Monday order a killing? They can compartmentalize very easy. And that was always amazing. And, and the ones that got ahead, they had the combination of balls. Like, okay, I could say that. They had a combination of balls and in intellect. Mm -hmm. The ones were just one or the other couldn't be ahead. Mm -hmm. you, have to have, you have to have both, you know. And that's why Michael Francis got so far, you know. Well, his father was Sonny Francis, so he had a bit of a leg up. True. Okay. But when he was... Uh, you know, straightened out, as they say, you know, he made the most of it. And, he, you know, next to next to Michael, only Al Capone, I think, earned more money in the mob ever yeah. in the history of the mob. Only Al Capone. But if you speak to Michael, he's extremely bright and extremely intelligent. And we have a show now. We have a podcast, The Wise and the Wise Guy. He has his own podcast and I have mine. But then we we loved working with each other. So we put one together. And, uh, and we talk about how we talk about the great books, Machiavelli, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, How to Win Friends and Influence People, and we break everything down the way the mob would see it and read it. And we color it with our mob stories, and it's really entertaining and really great. Being Sicilian-American also... Um, you know, there's many traditions that have been passed down in my family, everything from recipes to certain concepts, mm. certain fundamentals. Yeah. Among them, family first, honor, yes. respect, a distrust of government, totally. an inherent distrust of government. Yes. Um, and, and the sense, too, of business and what that means, which I think there's a parallel to that in a lot of how the mafia and the mob runs. To your point, you go to church on Sunday, well, it's business as usual on Monday. Right. But the success, perhaps, of the Hollywood stories is the character development because they they show that these characters are human, which means they're complex, yes. which means there's a temper and there's a demand for honor, but there's also a loyalty. 
right? right. There's a, a scrupulous dedication to the family, yes. biological and the mafia family. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, some of the old school guys really stood by Ermetta, you know, mm -hmm. Silas, you know, uh, Cosa Nostra. It was like, you didn't talk. What changed that? What really, people go, well, what brought down the mob? They Sometimes they think John Gotti brought down the mob because he talked, talked, talked all the time and he said too much over the phone. It really wasn't John Gotti. It was the RICO Act. Mm -hmm. Once they put the RICO Act in and once guys, you could be, you know, you could be convicted even if you didn't do it, that's what changed everything. Where now you're getting, you're not getting two, three years in jail no more. Now you're getting 40, 50 years so people started to sing. And once you sing and break the chain, and not only were they singing, as they say, in my, in my friends used to say, now they're composing. <laughs> <laughs> so they're singing and composing, which is bad. You know, and that, that's really what brought down the mob. Yeah. That's what brought it down. The leverage that Rico brought, uh, it meant that any type of when the government entity came in, the prosecutors came in, they, you were looking that the sentencing was so severe yes. to your point that it would make them seeing immediately, or they would see those that wouldn't would see the sentences imposed that this isn't, this is not a joke. And therefore it became draconian in a sense. Yeah. Send an email. That's 25 years right there. Yes. You know, that's, that's across wires, right? So it really, it brought the teeth um, to essentially prosecuting what was organized crime and those who participated in it. You've mentioned before, um, you know, we've talked about sort of the need to know and that the, for those of us who are curious, like, just just tell me, just tell me. But you've had a few anecdotes from the neighborhood where people close to you have said, Look, you, you don't need to know. You don't need to know why this happened. You, yeah. You'll never need to know. My father knows why what happened with the parking space. My father knows would not tell me. He was in his late 80s. I said, Dad, everybody's dead now. What happened that time? Come on, Dad. Yeah. You never. You always brush me off. Just tell me. And he would go, why? Why do I got to tell you for? I go, Dad, just tell me. It's not a big thing. <laughs> was it over money? Was it over? He goes, he spoke, you know, you know, my father, they, they would speak in non sequiturs. You know, people, <laughs> things happen. Sometimes money, uh, a girl, uh, I said, forget <laughs> it. And he said, why do you have to know for, why? Mm -hmm. He kept thinking he could not bring himself to tell me what happened. I mean, my, my, I'm, I come from heavy Sicilian roots. My grandmother, I used to go, my, my grandmother lived uh, below us, and I would go down to her apartment, my grandmother and grandfather, and my grandmother one, night, one day said to me, she said, uh, you know, you know, called you get get the uh, the ice, give me some ice. So back then, you open up the fridge, you know the the freezer was frozen, and you took out the ice tray and you had to like pull the thing, you know. So I grabbed the thing and I'm about to pull it. She screamed, "No, no, no! Don't touch that!" And I was like, "Grandma, what's the matter?" And I look at the ice tray, and I see all these pieces of paper, little pieces of paper sticking up out of the ice. And I went, well, "What's that?" She goes, "No, no, put that over there." I know that's. That's your grandfather's. And then she, she goes, use that ice. So I went upstairs. And I'm this kid now. I go, hey, hey, mom. I said, I was downstairs. Grandma asked me to go get the ice. And I take out the ice, uh, ice tray. And I'm about, about, and my mother goes, you didn't touch grandpa's. 
uh, she jumps on it now. I go, yeah, what the hell's the big thing with this? I said, what was that, Ma? So my mother could never keep a secret. My mother's the complete opposite of my father. <laughs> my father used to say, I never want to pull a bank job, but your mother, she'll give everybody up. <laughs> so my mother goes, oh, well, don't tell anybody. But uh, she goes, Grandpa, our father, if he didn't like somebody and he hurt the family, he would write their name on a piece of paper and then put it in the ice. And what that means is you're frozen for life. You can never get ahead. You'll never get a raise. You'll never succeed in life. You'll stay frozen. It was a Sicilian thing. Like it was the Malocchia mm, to put like the curse. Malo- the yeah. curse. Mm-hmm. And it had this ice tray with all these papers in it. How many papers do you think were in there? Oh, God. It wasn't f- everyone, but I would say there was probably a good eight. <laughs> could hear you in the control room laughing right yeah, now. Yeah, no, no. There was a, I oh. mean, that's, and then if you got a headache, my grandmother would say, come here, you know, what's the matter? I said, ah, grandma got a headache. She goes, oh, let me do the malok. And then she would get the olive oil. I mean, I'm embarrassed to say this. She'd get the olive oil. I don't know if you know about that. Then she'd dip her fingers in the olive oil, and she would drop the olive oil into water, and she would see the way they would circle. And since she'd say a prayer, and one time she she goes, I can't break the malok on you. Somebody's got it really bad on you. And I go, well, all right, what does that mean? Is this it? (laughs) She said, no, 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 that's bad, that's bad. And then she's doing it, and then she goes, and she gets a knife. She's holding a knife in her hand. She goes, ah, flings the knife, sticks in the wall. Sticks in the wall, in the kitchen. I I mean, I can't make this up. Sticks in the wall, and she goes, okay, it's broken. She goes, it'll go away, your headache. And I was like, okay. This is the life. That's incredible. That's the life. Oh, stone cold Sicilian. Oh we have similar, but not. You yeah. know, my my nonni would say aspetta all the time, which is so sweet. I was yeah. the youngest of three, yeah. and my father was the youngest of her three boys. Yeah. So she yeah. was in her, you know, gosh, already 80, 80s by the time I was of age of memory. Yeah. You know? Um, she was incredible. She was absolutely incredible, but very old school. To well, your old point. school. I mean, she. In many ways, uh, very, very, very old school. But I, I remember her so fondly. And her husband, my grandfather, had passed away, unfortunately, before I was born. So I never got to meet him. He only met my oldest sister. Um, but Noni, you know, there's so much now. She spoke so much Sicilian. And she spoke Italian and Greek, actually. Wow. Around us, I, I missed a lot. Um, because at that time, we were, we were supposed to be American, you know, so that we yeah. spoke English. We didn't learn right. Sicilian. It's a different time. Different time, yeah. Um, so I remember a lot of the phrases that now, you know, and there's such colorful phrases like, you know, it's, it's telling someone's business, the translation in Sicilian is like you, you're putting the dirty laundry on the porch. Yes. And the, yes. the feeling nervous is like the rotten guts. Yes. Right? Yes. Um, so going back to Hollywood and, and the portrayals, you know, a lot of my... Sicilian, especially Sicilian American friends, and here in the city, especially, take issue with a lot of the mob portrayals in Hollywood. They mm. say, you know, we we fought a lot to to surmount that perception of us that by virtue of this identity of being Sicilian, all people equate us to that. That's not us. That's not the majority. Yes. And for others, they see it as a source of pride. What's well? You? you know what? That's a really good question, Emily. And here's the deal with that: people go, you know, I'm very pro Italian. And very pro uh, Sicilian. I fight for the Columbus Day statue. Mm-hmm. I fight for all of that. But people go, you know, you're you're so pro Italian. Then why do you do these mob movies? Or sometimes you play mobsters. And I go, there's a difference between art 
and real life. I go, if you do a mob movie and do it well, when I do a mob character, I want it to be a three-dimensional character. Sonny was three-dimensional. Uh, Cheech, when I got nominated, was three-dimensional character. He was, he was like this brilliant playwright. So I said, to show the light, you have to show the dark. Otherwise, what will all movies be? What would movies be? I don't understand it. I, I truly, I said, if you don't like it, it's art. Shut it off. Don't watch it. You have that right in America. You have that privilege. Shut it off. Don't look at it. But we are doing art. Otherwise, so you're telling me we can never play a negative, a, a mobster? No one could play a, 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 a gangster? If you're black or white or Hispanic, you can't play a bad guy? I never heard anything like that. I really, I, I don't understand that. It's these self-serving people sometimes that just keep saying stuff like that. Mm -hmm. You know what? Shut it off. Don't watch it. That's okay. You don't want to see a mom movie? You, you don't want to watch Bronx Tale? Shut it off. You have that right. But to stop other people from working, that's wrong. That's right. I'm sorry, it's wrong. More of the Fox True Crime podcast coming up. This week, especially is the Tribeca Film Festival coming up around the corner. Do you have... A project in the works? Do you have a project that you would love to do in the future? Is there something that you are um, working toward in that realm? Well, I, I don't want to talk too much about it. I'm writing a new play. I wrote a play for me and Giancarlo Esposito, who's a great actor. And uh, it's about a hedge fund guy and a spiritual guy who meet on a park bench. And it's just, it's crazy. But I'm writing that now. And uh, I'm looking forward to that coming out. And I, re I, I really would love to play a priest. Mm. I'm looking for something where I could play a priest. If I can't find it, I'm going to end up writing it myself, you know. Yeah. But I'm very involved with my podcast right now, with my own, with my podcast, The Chai's Parliamentary Show, also The Wise and The Wise Guy with Michael Francis. I, I love doing the podcast, and I'm also doing the one-man show. And, yes. I, and I tell you, listeners, if you want to come and see the one-man show, just go to chazpalmentary.net. Or go to my Instagram, Chaz Palminteri, and you'll see. I mean, it's 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 the show that won all the awards. Uh, it was a big hit in New York. It won Show of the Year in Las Vegas on the Las Vegas Strip. So it's a great show. I do it around the country in between my TV series and things. So uh, I, I, I would love for you to come and see it one time. You would, you would really. Anytime you have two tickets, anytime. I can't wait. Absolutely. Right. Um, you're one of those people, clearly, who have 48 hours in each 24-hour block. Of the yeah. rest of us accomplish one thing maybe a day and call it a good day. You accomplish about 57 in each day. Your stamina is incredible. All you've accomplished, all you're doing right now. Final question about, yeah. you know, being going back to sort of the Sicilian-American and, and the mob um, and just that portrayal. You know, we to that point, we fly the Trinacria flag mm. below the U.S. flag at the at my family's winery. You know, it's, right. it's always regardless of what is portrayed or how people feel or the way the winds shift. We are forever Sicilian, Sicilian-American. Yes. We're proud of it. Proud and it defines so much of us. Um, so what did it mean to you and your family to have your incredible success? Because I'm one of those people that attaches myself to you like, yes, he made it. And that, you know, your success, we are all represented by it. Yeah. There's so many of us that have been cheering you on for so long. What did that mean to you and your family? It means a lot to me, especially my family. My mother and father, my father always bragged about me. I, my mother and father was so, so proud, so proud. And I, I've never seen two parents... You know, I, everybody has the greatest parents in the world. People, a lot of people yeah. say that, but my parents were truly 
above and beyond. They wrote, The Saddest Thing in Life is Wasted Talent. My sister became a real student, you know, master's degrees, double masters. My my other sister, uh, uh, she went to, uh, she, she didn't go to, she actually, she didn't go to college, but she started a travel agency, ended up having 34 travel agencies, sold them, made a fortune. So all of us were very successful. I was the last one. So my parents always said, don't worry, it's going to happen for you, it's going to happen for you. So I'll leave you with this story to show you the belief my parents had. And that was, when I was bouncing early on in the years, in my 20s, I would write on a little piece of paper, Dear Dad, could I have $20 for gas when I had no money? And I would slip it underneath this door because they lived <clears throat> on top of me and I lived in the apartment alone because uh, I didn't want to wake them up. And, and every time I'd wake up, i see $20, $30 there. And i say, oh, well, my father left me some money. Finally, that passed, and I got a part in an off-Broadway show. Years later, cut 25 years later, I make it. I'm a big star. I get nominated for Academy Award. My, I tell my mother father, you're going to walk down the red carpet with me. On the red carpet, you know, Joan Rivers and all those people there and all the big stars. I want everybody to meet you. And uh, me and my wife... I just got married at the time. We're walking down the aisle. And just before we walk down the aisle, excuse me, we're in the limo. They're about to open the door. My father takes out an envelope and he hands it to me. He goes, here, me and your mother, we save these. And I go, what? And I open up the envelope and I see $20, $10, $15. I go, what's this? Now I got a tuxedo on. They're, they're calling me on the red carpet. He goes, we save these, we save these cards because we knew this day would happen. Mm -hmm. What kind of parents do that? Now, picture this. Their son's in his 20s. He needs $10 for gas. They're giving it to me, and they're saying, you know, when he gets nominated, we're going to give him these cards back. What is going on in your mind? Tell me, please. Tell me. I, I, I'm stunned. I was stunned. Stunned. I couldn't believe it when I saw the cards. Mm. I, it's hard for me to talk about it because... Uh, it's wow. They in that was their investment into you because they knew exactly what was going to happen. They mm. were investing in their son, who they love unconditionally, and they yeah. knew you were going to be that big star because they always they already saw you as a star. They said to me, "You're you're a star. You're going to be yeah. a star. You'll see." I said, "Ma, you know I know, but you'll see. You don't even worry. It's my father said it's written. It's done. Mm. You're done. Never. You better stop this dream." My father said, "Dreams are for people when they're awake." Mm. Not when they're sleeping. You want to be this, you'll be this. But you better do it and be the best you can. Mm. So he put that saddest thing in life as talent. So that's why you say I got 48 hours in a day. Yeah. Every day I feel like, did I do enough today? Yeah. Did I do enough today? And my kids, I put it in their room, and they're the same way. My daughter uh, goes to the University of Michigan. She, they only took 12 girls into the theater program, the theater, musical theater program, 12 in the whole country. She was one of them. So what does she do in the summer? It's the summertime now. She could be off for the whole summer. If they're working like a dog, she goes, no, Daddy, I'm, I don't want to hang around the summer. I want to study at the Royal Academy in uh, London. Mm. She's at the Royal Academy right now studying in London. It's incredible. Right? My son, my son, actor, singer, songwriter, where did he go? I, Dad, I want to be a musician, right? Okay, I want to be a singer, I want to act, and I want to play guitar. Okay, where does he go? Audition for Berkeley as a guitar. Wow. Berkeley in Boston. Goes to music, yeah. Gets in, oh. graduates. Great singer-songwriter, great actor. I mean, 
And they're always like, Dad, yeah, listen, I want to talk to you. And then I always tell them, Are you not, uh, Dad, I'm not wasting my talent. Stop that. <laughs> but my father did it to me. Yeah. And you know what? They will do it to their kids. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're here for. You're here for, because when you create a child, when you create a child, Emily, it's not just a child. That child is a universe. You create a universe because my daughter and my son will get married and they will have, they'll marry a woman and they'll have, they'll have a, a children and those children will have children. And that is a universe. Think of all the, you know, uh, uh, your, your relatives, you know, 1700, 1600, 15, 14, 13. That's incredible. A life is just not a life. A life is something that's, and people give, give up on their lives and they give up. It's not. A life is a miracle, man. And so I'm so proud of my children. And you can say anything you want about my career, and, you know, and I, I could handle anything. But my best compliment is when someone comes over to me and says, hey, man, I met your son. Oh, what a great kid. I met your daughter. What a great, what a great girl. To me, that's the best compliment. I love that so much. You know, my dad coming again, I, I think the the Sicilian, the family first, the children are everything. Yeah. My father wrote a letter to me every mm. Sunday when I was in college. I saved every letter. Everywhere I was, whenever I wasn't living at home, I got a letter. And it was just sharing about his week, sharing about his yeah. day. So now I do the same thing. And we saved go. them. And his going back to his mom, we talked about, you know, my noni who everyone worked so hard to make sure that he was educated because they were the immigrant generation to make sure that he was educated so that he could have the life of true opportunity. He did the same for his girls. This is where I am today. And to that point, you know, my, my world is my family. My world is my dad and same, same back, you know, it's that it's the communication. It's the family dinners every night and the Sunday family dinners. And it's the constant communication. And every time, you know, he's so proud of me. And I say, well, I'm here because of you. I am, I am who I am and where I am and all I am because of, you because of you and because of the family before. For those, the ones who sit on a ship for two and a half weeks to get here, the ones who took the train from San Francisco back to New York, back to Sicily, back to San Francisco. I mean, we are, I consider my immigration story ordinary and extraordinary at the same time, just as all of us. Yeah. And that's why too, when we experience successes, in the in that realm, in the realm of being Sicilian American, the NYPD Columbia Association that you and I have talked about, yes. and the Columbus Day Parade, I the pride I have for that exceeds anything else because in those moments I'm representing my whole family and all those generations back yes. and the universe before me, like yes. you said. Yes, I mean that's you are a mirror to your children. Mm-hmm. If you if a man is abusive to his wife. His children will be abusive. Mm-hmm. His son will be abusive. If his man hits his wife, the son will probably hit his wife. That's just the way it is. You know, you, you, I looked at my father, and my father was like this, you know, the, the most honest human being ever. He was a bus driver making $48 a week, and the wise guys offered him $150 a week just to run numbers for them. So in other words, you, he, all they had to do was pass him a number on the bus, he would take to a, uh, five bus stops down and pass it to somebody else. And that was an easy way to do it. You know, they didn't have to, they, the num- they figured they could do it this way. The cops wouldn't bust the, the number guy running. 
My father said, I won't do it. $150 a week. My father said, and I said, Dad, $150 a week? What are you kidding? And he said, if I get pinched, I lose my, 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 my job. He goes, this is a civil job. I got a retirement. And you know what? My father retired at 64, and he lived to 91 on that retirement. So he was right. Chaz Palminteri, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Grazie you. mille for joining us today and sharing a little bit of your family's history. Every time you tell a story and share, it's just, it's so gripping and compelling. And I'm such a big fan, as I know millions and millions are. And we can't wait for your next project. And we'll be definitely listening to all your podcasts and the one with Michael Francis. And yes, the wise and the wise guy. The and wise, I want guy. you to come, I'm telling you, yes, to watch yes. me do the show and talk about this, but in, in the movie, mm -hmm is a whole nother thing. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.